The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And turning your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, our sermon will be looking at verses 14 and 15, but I'd like to begin reading back in verse 12 and then through the end of verse 17. What you're about to hear, the words of the king who rules upon a throne that is higher than every other throne, and though he dwells and reigns from on high, he speaks to us who live upon the earth. May we listen to him with open hearts this morning. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were created in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, one of the things that Christmas or Thanksgiving or kind of the holidays season stirs up might be, uh, well, fond memories of seasons that have gone by, or it might be uh, the anticipation of, uh, well, if you're like me and you look forward to the feasting aspects of the occasion, and then there's just, there's dishes that always ought to be there. I put emphasis on ought, because sometimes you have family members that are tasked with bringing them, and the instructions are simple. Don't change it. And what do they do? They want to ram their diet down your neck and rob you of Christmas joy. All that to say that living together is sometimes difficult, and that is the theme of this morning's message. Might say, those hurts sound fresh. They are. They never heal. So, living together in meaningful relationship, and I will put the emphasis on meaningful relationship, has at times abundant and wonderful blessings. There is, however occasions and situations where living together in a meaningful way, and and by, by meaningful I mean not in a way that keeps people at arm's distance where it's very safe, I neither um, entrust myself to them or them to me. And so very little harm and hurt can come in those situations. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about real relationships where you are both known and know the other. And there's this odd thing about it, you're a sinner, and they're a sinner, and and in, in such circumstances, it can be difficult to live together. Now, this will work actually on what we could call a, a large scale as well as a very small scale. It can be true that within churches, there would be factions of people that would struggle to live in harmony 
with one another. It it can grow from that even to a church-to-church level where different churches wage war against one another because they find it too difficult to live in harmony with one another. And then it can actually contract and shrink all the way down to the to the family level. And it can be hard for a, a, a confessing Christian husband to live with a confessing Christian wife or parents with kids. We can actually experience this difficulty on the most close, intimate levels. And when those difficulties arise, I didn't say if they arise, we'll put it when they arise, we all seemingly turn into a bunch of environmentalists. You might say, what does global warming have to do with anything? Nothing. That's not what we're talking about. We blame the environment as to the source of our problems. You might say, how do I blame the weather? Well, if you used to live in Seattle, we blame the weather for everything, but that's not what we're talking about. We blame the circumstance or the person outside of us. If only she would, and you can fill in the blank. If only he would stop, you can fill in the blank. If only they wouldn't mess with my favorite casserole, whatever it is, if only they, the thing outside of me, would get their act together, we would then have peace. But so long as my environment doesn't change, I can't have peace. We all do this. We we, we all do this. We, We all point to certain circumstances that have bits of truth attached to them. And what I want to plead with you today is that as a God-fearing man or as a God-fearing woman, we would, with regards to peace in our relationships, stop looking outward for the cause or the solutions to this and would consider our own hearts in the matter. That we would, instead of pointing fingers outward, say, what am I? As a son or as a daughter of God, what am I called to do living in community with other people so that I might be at peace? And quickly the answer born to us by Colossians chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 would go something like this. You are called as a Christian to be clothed in love and ruled by peace. And, and that, uh, those imperatives, those commands actually come to us in the context of life together. The way that we live with one another. That's the context of the way that our our vertical relationship with God is then worked out horizontally among one another. How should we conduct ourselves, this side of salvation and yet this side of glory in the midst of, well, a sin-ruined, cursed world where we still deal with the effects of sin? We both sin and are sinned against. What am I as a Christian called to? I'm called to be clothed in love and to be ruled by peace. We want to consider that theme uh, under three headings this morning. And And the first is just very, very straightforward. We ought to be adorned by love. We are called as Christians to be adored, adorned, clothed with love. If you Look at verse 14, it opens up and repeats the same imperative or command that that we found in verse 12, Uh, and above all these, put on love, and if you go back up, he's actually borrowing the the command from verse 12, He, he doesn't repeat it in verse 14. The command of the, for the Christian to put on these elements or these aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ reaches all the way back to verse 14, or verse 12, excuse me. And as that command, that, that uh, 
command that depicts putting on clothing of the new man unfolds in front of us through verse 12 and verse 13. We, we talked about how there are different, different articles of clothing that the children of Zion are to be clothed in. What ought to be the Christian's new clothes? Well, the Christian, like their Savior, ought to be adorned in a compassionate heart and patience and meekness. We ought to then be clothed with humility and kindness. And the way that those, we said, work their way out in the way that we live among one another is that we bear with each other and we forgive each other. The bear with one another is how do we interact with people who are just different than us? Not sinned against us, that will come under the forgiving heading. How do we deal with people who, I'd say, changed recipes, but that would fall under the sinning category, at least in my mind. How do we deal with folks who are just different? They, 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 they're just, and there's no right explanation in our mind as to why are you the way that you are? There's no good answer. They're just tough. And they come to us, the tough ones, as gifts from God. You might say, I hope he kept the receipt. He didn't. (laughs) They're gifts. You might say, that's like getting socks for Christmas. Isn't that what I wanted? Sometimes he gives wonderfully easy to get along with saints. And sometimes he gives just tough to get along with saints. And he uses the both differently to grow us more like Jesus Christ. And hopefully in someone's book, you're that wonderfully easy to get along with person. But certainly in someone's book, you are that like, oh man, I don't understand you. You're that gift to someone else. Just keep that in mind. (laughs) That's the bearing with one another. And if you want people to bear with you, what should we then do? Well, bear oddly, you know, oddly, evenly with them. Bear kindly with them. Bear patiently with them. And then in the occasions where they do sin, and guess what? That's going to happen. Quick to forgive. Running, eager, yearning to forgive. Why? You've been forgiven of everything. The holy God against you have sinned so grievously has issued you a full pardon. Why would we believe or think or act that we've got a better, higher standard than him? When we, don't, when we withhold forgiveness, we'll just say from a Christian, we're hanging on to something that Jesus then died for. We're hanging on to something that was dealt at Calvary's cross and wanting judgment to be rendered. Christian, we have nothing to do with things like that. We have nothing to do. There's reasons why in the Lord's Prayer, help us to forgive or forgive us as we have forgiven. I mean, use the same measuring scoop to ladle out forgiveness for me as I have used with others. I mean, that's a scary thing to pray, which would then mean in our relationships, we ought to go find the biggest bowl we can to ladle out forgiveness for others. It's in that context of of the the clothing and the king's colors that we are adorned in. We looked at how all of those are are elements of Christ. Isn't Christ kind to you and forgiving of you and long-suffering of you? I mean, all of them are the king's clothes. And then here in verse 14, it, it, it sort of boils up to a climax And above all these, he repeats, put on love. That that last article of clothing, you might say, that is put on by the believer is is, is, is love. 
And if forgiveness is the, if we said, you know, if we could assign uh, parts of clothing to these elements, we might say forgiveness is the crown. We might say that the, that the crown atop the Christian's head as they're clothed in the likeness of Christ might just well be forgiveness. You might say, well, then how would I view love? The, the wording that Paul gives it in verse 12, put on uh, above all these or in addition to all these, it's almost as though love is that regal royal robe that is put on over it all. That if the king's sons and the king's daughters are dressed like him, well, that outer robe would be love. You might say, well, why would it be that? Because he is so adorned in this way. Because that's what Christ is like. How could you look at any element of the Savior and not say perfumed, profuse with love? in every interaction, in every encounter, in each word that comes to us from him through his word, love, scenting and running through all of it. And you might say, well, okay, with this love that we're called to put on, isn't love kind of a, a, a squishy, intangible, abstract idea? Can one even put on love? I mean, I'm a victim, I love things and I don't love other things and I'm, I'm just, I fall into it and sometimes I can fall out of love. It's not the way that the Bible would speak of love. The world speaks of love the way they speak of car wrecks, something that happens to you that can be good or bad. Well, I guess usually bad in car wrecks, I guess. <clears throat> but we, we, we talk of it like a pit. You fall into it and you can also like, a tall building, you can fall out of it. Like, we speak of love that way. That is not the way the Bible would speak of love. The world views love as something over which I just do not exert control. It controls me, not I, it. They did not get that from the Bible. We might define love as seeking the good of another at expense to oneself accompanied by affection. So it has direction. It seeks the good of those around. And that good is not a subjective good. It is an objective good. It's good by nature of the thing itself, not in the perspective of the person receiving it. It is the pursuit of that good. It is done usually not out of the slush fund of one's life, but out of the expensiveness or self-sacrificial element of one's life. And lest we forget the end, it is accompanied by affection. It's not simply an affection and it isn't simply service. It is both together. And if you take away the serving aspect of it, you do not have love. If you take away the affectionate aspect, I'm going to argue you don't have love. You say, I don't know. That sounds like a definition you made up. It is. But let me give you Paul's definition of it. Love, and Paul's is way worse than mine as far as difficult to bear. Love is patient and it's kind. It doesn't envy and it doesn't boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. That's the kind of love, Christian, you are called to put on as a robe over the five virtues of verse 12, over the two driving participles of verse 13, and it adorns the Christian throughout. You might say love is added as the highest among them. That would sound a whole lot like 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Above all these is love. You might have that element to it, but I think a better understanding of what Paul is driving at is not above all these things, and the, these things would have to be those five virtues, but throughout those things. 
that love pervades our kindness and love pervades our patience and our our tenderheartedness and love runs through the way that we bear with one another and love runs through the way that we forgive one another. Love runs through all of those. If love didn't, Paul would say, your pseudo-kindness, your pseudo-meekness is a clanging symbol or an obnoxious gong. It's like when those people who say they're friends of yours give your kids for Christmas toys that make noise. (laughs) Friends don't do that. Enemies do that. They give your kid a drum set. And that's where you have to forgive as you've been forgiven. Our kindness would be that kind of a sound if love did not accompany it. Our meekness would be that kind of a sound if love did not accompany it. Our greatest efforts on the horizontal plane one with another would be obnoxious if love does not accompany all of it. And notice the effect that this has on the community, whether it is in the family, whether it is in the church, whether it is church to church, however big or small the community is, look at the effect that the robe of love that is kingly like Christ has on the community. You see it at the end of verse 14. Above all these things, put on then love, which binds everything together, the ESV says, in perfect harmony. The way that that Paul unpacks the the end of this verse is that we would put all this on which, now you need to know what which is pointing back to, the which points back to the putting on of love. So you could put it this way. Uh, Above all these things, put on love, and the putting on of love Uh, Literally, the way he says it is the bond of perfection or maturity. The way that Christians love one another as Christ loves them, as the word of God directs them, when they engage in spirit-worked, biblical loving of one another, it binds the community together perfectly, uh, that that works, but it's not there yet. The idea is that of like the end or completion or or the goal to which all things are then moving. When the family can love the members of that family with biblical love, it has a, in a good way, a binding or unifying effect and a maturing into Christ-likeness effect on the family. When members of a church can love one another as they've been loved, guess what happens? Bonds of unity begin to wrap around that church, and they together as a family grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You take love away and you don't arrive at those conclusions. You don't get unity. You don't get maturity. You get division and schism and sin. You get get all the stuff you don't want in a family or in a church or between churches. But when love can ride in triumph through the streets, a church begins to grow as she was ever meant to grow. And each member contributing with the gifts that they have. Each member of that body being different and diverse, working together for the mutual edification. You were not called to live a lone ranger type of Christianity. You were brought into a family 
Because, now this is where like Americans, and then especially like Nevadans, don't like this. You need one another. You might say, need? I'll say it again. You need one another. The lie of I'm my own self-made person, independence, I like helping but hate being helped. Someone should have said ouch or amen, one of them. Because you're like, man, this guy meddling now. We're going to meddle. You need each other. You need the easy folks and the hard ones. You need the gifts that the Spirit has given to each other for the mutual building up of the church. The lie that we've so easily swallowed and digested is The church is helpful, but not necessary. Others are nice, don't need them. That's a lie. You need one another, and you need to love one another. And when that happens, growth and maturity into the, the, not the thing, the one that we are all growing towards and growing into, Christ Likeness, that has been the, like the heading over this entire section of Colossians. What is the Christian's goal in life? To grow in every way more into the likeness and image of Christ, more Christ being formed more fully in me in every area. You might say, that sounds hard. It is. How do I do it? Mutually, sacrificially love one another from the heart. And watch as elements of the Savior are formed. You might say, I'm not very kind. I believe you. Watch as the Spirit grows that in you. He didn't tell you, like, here's the stuff you've got down. No, here's the stuff you need to work on. And he's willing to work on it, eager to. This is the will of God for you. Sanctification. Right. Secondly, we want to consider then the need we have to be ruled by peace. The need that we have to be ruled by peace. Look at verse 15, if you would. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, there's no easy way in English to say what Paul is saying. Uh, the, the let rule is actually, I know you're like, man, finally some grammar up in here. We'll get there. The let rule is an imperative. It's a command. You might say, but it's not a you. It's a it let it. It's, it's tough in English. I'll give, I'll give you that. It is still a command nonetheless. So the way that we might put it in English to help us just grasp the, the push of it, you must be ruled by the peace of Christ. Let sounds like it's optional. Like, hey, you might want to diet. Like, yeah, I might let that happen. Sounds optional, not very promising. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul says the peace of Christ must rule your heart. Even the way that he puts it in in, in that it is a, not just a command, it's a present command, which means this, is, this ought to be then the normal in and out day living of life. This isn't like, hey, you, you just got to make it happen one time. And then the effects of that one time, it just kind of flows through the rest of your life. It's like, you know, you get the inoculation and then the rest of the time, you, you know, you're free and clear. Like, no, the peace of Christ must always be ruling in your heart. This is the state of the way that you live. And now the word that he uses for rule, it's not, a, it's not the normal word that he would pick for uh, ruling like a king would rule. The word he uses is that, the, that Christ's peace must be the arbiter of your hearts. Another way you could say it is the umpire. Now, I don't like that. Mainly because it's a baseball analogy. But I can see some applications. (laughs) I'm not going to look over here. I'm going to look over here. There's there's friendly faces over here. 
Christ's peace needs to be the arbiter or umpire of your heart. I say, what what does that mean? How does the peace of Christ, and it's interesting, Christ both is our peace and the one who brings that peace, on both elements he does this, how does Christ's peace be the arbiter in my heart? One commentator, seeking to answer this, says here, peace occurs in an exhortation to the readers to let Christ's peace hold sway in their lives. Now listen to this. As they relate to one another. We've not lost the horizontal aspect. It's not like he's like, listen, in your quiet time, away from all the people. And Christ rules in peace. That'd be nice. That'd be easy. He has not lost sight on this. In fact, far from losing sight of it, he goes, now I know, I know about this. You need Christ's peace to officiate your heart. And because that first commentator wasn't bad enough, Lightfoot says, whenever there is a conflict of motive, did you ever have a conflict of motive in your own heart? Or an impulse or reasons, the peace of Christ must step in and decide which one is to prevail? Oh, man. In dealing on this plane, beloved, do you ever have competing desires in your heart? You recognize the person in need in front of you, but in here, there's a wretch who goes by the name I and me and mine. And he has rights. He has a ton of rights. And he's in there. You might be like, are you possessed? Like, no, we're just, we're, we're personifying here. And that inner man, whether it's in a conversation with your spouse, your kids, a church member, he's always there. And in conflict especially, it doesn't really, if there's no, if there's no conflict, no di- disagreement, there's no need for, I hate to say it, an umpire. But when there's conflict, competing desires and wants, you kind of need one to distinguish or one to separate. Now, we love being our own arbiter. We love being that umpire and telling the person that we're having conflict, you're out of here. <laughs> Which I, that's the one thing I like about baseball is when someone gets thrown, because it proves to me that all they're belly aching about soccer players and the drama, you want drama, look at someone get kicked out of a baseball game. Oh my goodness. They're kicking stuff and spitting and stuff. It's neither here nor there. We like being that guy to kick them out. We're not to be the arbiter. The peace of Christ is. And so we are to subject our internal motives, wants, wishes, and desires to his rule and reign. And his rule and reign, I don't think it is a coincidence, is marked by what? It's marked by peace. Peace. That must by necessity mean If I am even in some way being governed by the peace of Christ in the way that I deal with you, guess what? I will not tend to be a contentious person. I won't. You can't can't be like, Christ rules and reigns, and he always rules in my favor. Like, uh, no. (laughs) You, you, uh, You have it. All backwards. (laughs) He would rule against statements like that, that are dumb and wrong. Immediately. Subjecting our own wants, wishes, and desires to his peace. So in conflict in the home, and in conflict in church, and in even bigger conflicts, we would say, God, man, search my heart. Search, is this in accordance with the peace you bring? 
Or am I wanting? Am I digging my heels in? Am I making demands? Am I keeping lists? Am I more desirous to be seen as right than to love and show kindness here? What a prayer that would be in the middle of conflict. Like, Lord, rule me. We'd want to make it, you know, we usually want to turn that around, like, Lord, fix them. Like, no, we'll keep it in here. That, that's that environmentalism creeping back in. Lord, govern me. Govern this wayward wretch first. May Christ's peace rule my heart in all of my dealings. And now notice, he doesn't just leave it there. Oh, that's bad enough. But notice where he, de- he, he develops it. Let the peace of Christ, we're in verse 15, rule in your hearts. Now notice where he takes this. To which indeed you were called in one body. You might say, oh, oh I don't know what that has to do with, with much of anything. Well, again, we're going to have to identify what the, the to which is referring back to. The first which was referring back to the putting on of love. This instance, it's referring back to, and it's not, it's not ambiguous. It's not a maybe. It's, it's an absolute certainty. The which is pointing back to the peace of Christ. So you could read it like this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And that peace of Christ... To that peace, you were called. There is, there's so much just right here. He says, Christian, why should you? This is the expanded amplified version. Why should you be ruled by the peace of Christ in the inner man in all of your dealings? You were called to do this. You were called to let peace reign in you. I don't know if you've ever had the joy of watching someone in the craft to do the thing that, I mean, you're just like, God made that person to do that thing. And it doesn't even really matter what it is. Some are are like more impressive than others. But there's sometimes where you see whether it's a writer or an athlete or whoever it is in their craft, when they're really good at it, it's, it's just something to behold. When they're bad at it, it's not nearly as fun to watch. Well, it's funny to watch, but when they're really good at it, you think you're doing that thing that you were made to do. You can see it sometimes with, with someone who's just a craftsman. You're watching the way that they just shape and fashion wood or iron or a combination of the two, and you're just like, whoa, you're doing the thing God made you to do. I, I think of that when I, when I either hear really talented musicians play or, or I see people who can draw stuff. I can't even get stick figures to have legs that are even. So when, when someone can draw, I'm like, man, look at that. You're doing the thing you were made to do. When you see a mom with a brand new young one in her arms, you see it. You're doing that thing. That's just the way it should be. Paul says, Christian, when the peace of Christ rules your heart, you're doing that thing that you were made to do. It's in your new nature under the new man, Christ. Far from being what might be perceived as weak or far from being like, we'd say, well, I'm supposed to be a doormat? What is, like, no, far from any of that. You are living out your calling as a Christian. You're doing that. And here's the wonderful thing. There's no... A time card that you punch on this. It's never like, hey, you hit your 50 hours, you got to go home. Like, no, you get to do this in 
Every relationship, every relationship is an opportunity for the the peace of Christ to rule in your heart and for you to then do the thing that you were called to do. Have you ever met someone like that? They're wonderful to be around. They're wonderful to be around. I've known some God-fearing saints that you could smell like heaven on them because they sought peace and they loved one another from the heart. You as a Christian are called to that same thing and you get to be that. It doesn't depend on lack of talent or an abundance of talent. It doesn't depend on your, how tall or short you are. Or how, it doesn't matter. It doesn't depend on any of those things. It depends on one thing. Are you a Christian? If yes, excellent. You have everything you need supplied to you from God's word and by his spirit to be one ruled by peace. G.K. Beale says God calls people not merely to be his people, but also to live a certain God, in a certain godly manner. This shows that the calling to salvific faith in Christ is inextricably linked to the direction of an entire lifestyle as a necessary outcome of such faith. Christian, this is what you were called to. There should be a sense of of weight to that. Some sense of of have to in that. Some sense of like, I don't don't need, it's not just like I have the right to do it. I've got that birthright to do it. I was born into this in the new birth. This is not optional. This is what it is to be a Christian. Now, we could choose to put it in one of two boxes. Duties that I do not like doing, but do them anyway because I have to. That is not the box I would prefer we put this in. I prefer we put it in, this is regal. This is my inheritance. This is what I was made to do. And so I'm going to do it with all my might. I'm going to seek to love and to let Christ's peace rule in me with every fiber. It's because that's what I was made for. Paul adds to this, and it's just, you might have even seen it as like a weird throwaway thing at the end, but we'll note it thirdly and in closing. And be thankful. You might say, I could have done without that. Isn't it enough that we're to be robed in love? And isn't it enough that we're to be, let Christ's peace rule? And I get the whole, like, okay, we're made to do it kind of thing. But, but why throw that in there? He puts it as a command, and he puts it as a present command, which means it is to be a normal, frequent, or constant state of your life. You are to be, by command or imperative, thankful. Now, By that, here's what he's not, I don't think this is what he's saying. I mean, maybe if I get to heaven and and we're allowed to talk about things that we said down here about Paul, uh, he might correct me on it. But I don't think by this, Paul has this in mind. In the midst of conflict, you embrace a bit of a snarky sense of thanksgiving where you're like, man, I'm thankful for thorns in my side. That's not the kind of Thanksgiving he has in mind. I'll go out on a a limb. I think it's a stout one. I don't think Paul's saying that. I don't think he's saying, you know, Pastor Pastor Daniel talked about difficult people, and that's you. I don't think Paul says that that's what we're thankful for. I think what he's talking about is a person who is, rather than turned inward on all the things that they want and don't have or have and they don't want, we can dip into either of those, uh, it actually turns their gaze outward and then even 
upward to what God, as the giver of all good gifts, gives to them and says, you know what, even in the midst of all this conflict, look at all the good God has done to me, rather than letting whatever this silly little conflict is get so large in my eyes, it's all I can see. Pick the gaze up and be thankful. If you've ever tried to argue with a truly thankful person, it's frustrating. (laughs) They don't tend to fight back. We should all strive to be that person. Not in some weird sense of like, wasn't it? See, this is why I shouldn't talk about stuff I don't know about the stuff. Wasn't Pollyanna about the story about the little girl that like was supposed to be thankful or something? Yeah, just nod along, but sure, whatever. <laughs> that story. <laughs> Where it was just like, hey, I'm gonna ignore life stuff. Uh, I'm gonna try to just, you know, superficially stoke the fire of things. Like, no, 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 no. We're not talking about a make-believe game of I'm going to try to be this even though it just simply isn't true. No, it will accord with reality. God has truly blessed you. Ephesians would say, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have so much to genuinely, rightly be thankful for. Instead of grousing about all the stuff that we don't like or isn't going perfectly right, or if we had it would be the key to being you know, that happy person, lifting our eyes up off of ourselves. On to God, the giver of good gifts. Lord, I could spend the rest of today just speaking of the forgiveness of my sin and would have more than enough to be thankful for. I could consider the wonders of what you've brought to me through this person. Even though at this moment they're being tough. I can still be thankful for the ways I've seen Christ in them and they've encouraged me. They've been a blessing to me. What if we then started to think that way in families and as a church and even as a bigger church? Looking not on the small things that gum up the wheels of this life, but considering the genuine benefits that have been rendered to us perfectly in Christ. I think that would actually deal death blows to the squabbles and the fights and the quarrels that erupt. I mean, even if I could just steal from James chapter 4, when he says, you know, what is it that causes these quarrels and fights among you? I wish James was like, The problem is the person you're fighting with, really, at the end of the day, it's them, not you. The problem is they would read that same verse and be thinking about me. But anyway, what causes these among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Can you not even hear the need for the peace of Christ to arbiter in the middle of that internal war. Absolutely. You desire and you don't have, and so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Wouldn't the answer to James' diagnosis of our fights and quarrels be this? Christ's peace must rule in you and be thankful. Rather than focusing on I want and do not have, saying, Lord, the blessings that abound. Even in the midst of difficulty, gazing upon the Savior by faith, who has so richly blessed you, petitioning him to rule your heart with his peace, knowing that the product or the output of such ruling will be peace and being clothed in love in all of our interactions with one another. That is what you are called to as a Christian. And you might say, man, that's a super, that's tough, that's a bummer. You realize this. 
when you are when you look inside you and you're like i don't see a whole lot of encouragement you are correct but if you gaze upon all that god has provided you in his word and by his spirit and that this is his will for you how will he not give you this this is not an occasion where we pray timidly and, and unknowingly like, Lord, do you want it? No, he, it's clear he wants it for you. This is not something where you're like, I would, but I don't have. No, you have everything you need for that supplied for you in the word of God and by the spirit of God and the abundance of the grace that he pours in. You actually don't lack anything for this. So what would stop you? What would stop you from pursuing these things that God has laid out to you as gems for his children? The answer is nothing. Other than maybe just this wretched thing. This is what you're called to, Christian. Rise and pursue it with all that you are as Christ be formed more fully in all of us. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we, we petition you, we beg you that you would form us more into the likeness and the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is clothed in love. We pray that we would as well. He is the Prince of Peace. And we pray that his peace would rule us. And he is the giver of all good gifts. We pray that we'd be thankful to him. Father, please work mightily among us to this end. We pray that we would be families and marriages and church members clothed in peace or clothed in love and ruled by peace. We pray that the world would then know that we are surely your disciples by the way that we love one another and live at peace with one another. We ask this in our Savior's great name. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.